Welcome to Responsa Radio, where you ask and we answer questions of Jewish law in modern times. I'm Rabbi Avi Killip, and I'm here with Rabbi Ethan Tucker, Rosh Yeshiva at Machon Hadar, a center for higher Jewish learning based in New York City. If you enjoy listening to Responsa Radio, please consider making a donation to Machon Hadar at www.mechonhadar.org or Jewish Public Media at jpmedia.co. So one of the things I think has been really interesting and rewarding to me as a side effect of recording this podcast is that we have a lot of listeners who do not themselves consider halakha as binding. They don't live their lives necessarily exactly according to what the halakha says, but nevertheless are extremely interested to learn from halakha, and many of whom are in relationship with people who do consider halakha binding on their lives, and that some of the questions that we address help them, help help all of our listeners to understand each other better in addition to understanding their own lives. Yeah, I think it's great that we've, uh, we connect with that, with that broad range of people. I think it's really exciting piece of this. And so this next question really speaks to that experience of how we live together in community as Jews who have different practices, but are drawing on the same halachic tradition. All right, great. Let's hear it. Okay. She writes, I drive on Shabbat and one of the places I drive to is a Bible study group that starts during Shabbat in the homes of observant Jews. After Havdalah, I offer rides home to the study participants and most are happy to get a lift in what is often cold and wet weather. One woman insists on walking home alone and in the dark. I suppose she doesn't want to benefit from my Shabbat breaking, though after Havdalah, I'm no longer breaking the Shabbat. Nevertheless, I wouldn't be there with my handy car if I hadn't driven. It's a comparatively safe neighborhood, but still I worry about her. Is there a halachic argument I could use to convince her to accept a ride? That's a great one. You never know what's going to convince someone. So that I won't <laughs> vouch for, but I think it's a, it's a really interesting question. Look, this goes back to what you said at the beginning. Obviously, we get lots of questions that have premises that are not, you know, you don't control the premise of a question. Obviously, if the person was asking me a question about driving on Shabbat, I would have lots of opinions of saying, here's why you shouldn't drive or how you might think of it differently. But as you say, that's not the way the world works. The world works in ways that people intersect with one another in complex ways. And this is actually an interesting and important opportunity to examine one particular category, which is known as Ma'ase Shabbat. Ma'ase Shabbat, literally something that's been done on Shabbat in the sense of it's the product of a violation of Shabbat. This is a really rich category, be great to explore in depth from all kinds of angles, but I want to zero in on the angle that's been explored here, which is, well, how do we deal with a case where someone knows something's a violation of Shabbat, they do it, that's the choice that they make, and then there's some kind of result of it, there's an after effect of it, what kind of restrictions does that impose on other Jews? other Jews who would not have done that action on Shabbat, who would consider it a violation that they would never do. So this is taken up in the Shulchan Aruch in a very direct way. We're not the first ones to deal with these kinds of questions. 
And they're really processing like a long tradition that goes all the way back to the, to the Tosefta and the Mishnah. The Shulchan Aruch cites a case of someone who cooks on Shabbat and says, if you cook on Shabbat, if someone cooks on Shabbat deliberately, they know it's forbidden to cook on Shabbat, they know it's Shabbat, and they cook anyway. After Shabbat, other people are allowed to benefit from that right away. So you have a friend who is fully aware of the rules of Shabbat, and they're Jewish, but they decide to bake themselves a cake, okay, on Saturday morning. As soon as Havdalah is over, as soon as Shabbat is done, you're allowed to eat that cake. You don't even have to wait as long as it would take to bake the cake after Shabbat. It's mutar miyad. It is permissible immediately, even though they did it deliberately and it was an outright violation. That feels surprising to me. I would have assumed that you do have to wait the amount of time it would have taken them to bake the cake is there a good explanation for yeah. why it's okay? Well, it's an interesting question. So there is a notion of having to wait that long to kind of allow it to play out such that you could have done it after Shabbat. But we only find that directly in sources that speak about benefiting from stuff that non-Jews do on Shabbat. Huh. And the way most commentators explain the distinction is, well, the fear is that you will end up using someone non-Jewish as an agent to do things for you on Shabbat so they'll be ready immediately afterwards. And only if we say you have to wait the amount of time it would take you to do it, will you lose all benefit from doing that and then you won't use them. But the idea is, but no one, an observant Jew, let's say at least, would actually have the gall to ask another Jew to do something they consider totally forbidden on Shabbat for them. And therefore, to the extent that it happens, and it wasn't done, you know, by you or for you in some specific way, there's no reason to penalize you. It's not Shabbat anymore. You didn't do anything wrong. So in our scenario here, for example, you're saying it would be different if this woman had said to the questioner, could you please drive to the study group this week so that you could give me a ride home after? That would be majorly problematic. Now, even then, I'll say, to the extent the person themselves, you know, they're actually coming to the study group and they're driving for themselves anyway, and it's the same amount of driving for one person as for two people, it's not even as black and white in that case that the person's really doing it for the other person involved. In other words, even mm -hmm. if they're checking in with them and saying, oh, are you coming this week? Because if you're not, I may stay home. But if you are, I would appreciate a ride on the other end. Technically, I want to complicate this in a minute, but technically you can say, well, the person actually hasn't really done anything for the person in question. So you're saying even that would be okay, I, potentially. Potentially, it's not really that different because the person is already doing this action for themselves and is not doing it in a way specifically for someone else or no additional milacha, no additional forbidden labor is being done. Let's get to another kind of lenient factor here. Put aside the fact that the driving of the car to give this person a lift home is obviously a, a milacha, that's like a significant act. But when you think about what's actually happened to the car by bringing it over on Shabbat, the thing that was done that enables the person to get a ride is really actually about transporting an object from one place to another. 
That is to say, the car in theory could have been put in neutral from the original person's house and rolled all the way to its present place. It's not like the actual act of driving or lighting the fire in the car in any way is benefiting the person receiving the ride on the other end. It's the fact that the car shouldn't have gotten here. And that falls into its own category of milachot, of these forbidden actions, where the object itself hasn't really been transformed. So the Shulchan Aruch's case of uh, cooking or baking, well, there the cake is completely different from the flour and oil and eggs and ingredients that made it up. That is to say, the violation of Shabbat has actually turned it into something completely different. But the car is the car is the car. It's just now parked in a different place. And there there's precedent for even saying that on Shabbat itself, you can benefit from an object that was illegally and even deliberately transported from one place to another. So for instance, you know, if you had a guest uh, bring something to your house on Shabbat from outside of an Eru, from let's say, you know, carrying it in an impermissible way, but the bottle of wine is the same bottle of wine. It's just in a place it shouldn't have been. Uh, there are many contexts and many poskim, many authorities who would say, yeah, you can actually drink that wine on Shabbat itself. Even right away. Wow. Because nothing happened to it. And yeah, this person shouldn't have done what they did. But that's a conversation right. about their religious observance, not about something that's left a mark on this object. Yeah. So... As we said, we don't even really get there because again, on the black letter law here, even with the cake, <laughs> you're allowed to eat it right after Shabbat because the idea is we don't suspect that you're gonna come to ask people, uh, other Jews to do malacha for you on Shabbat. And once Shabbat is over, there's no reason to treat this particular object as being irrevocably marked. So that would be the sort of skeleton of the halachic argument this person is looking for to convince this person, here's why it's okay for you to get a ride from me. Yeah, I, there's, these sound like very pluralism-friendly halachot in this moment. I'm not, it doesn't sound, seem clear to me that pluralism is the motivating reason behind these answers, um, but that as, as the fallout, the practical answer is that people can be in community more easily, be less suspicious of each other, and maybe have a little bit less friction around their different observance levels than they would had the halakha come out differently. Yeah, I agree with that 100% on both counts. I don't think there's any sense here of trying to soften up on our opinion about Shabbat violations or doing this in order to take those less seriously. But it is an indubitable effect of this way of kind of restricting the indelible mark that's left on objects that stick around in our world after Shabbat that it gives more breathing room for just being able to navigate a world in which you perceive those violations to be going on and nonetheless you're in relationship. Now, let's make it a little more complicated here from two angles. I think, as you already alluded to, you do have to be careful that this doesn't cross the line of starting implicitly to be done for you. That is to say, okay, if you're dealing with a case where a person has been going to a study group for 20 years on their own 
and then you join that group and then it turns out that person is available to give you a ride, that's one thing. If this is someone you actually forged a relationship in the context of the group, actually part of what is keeping them in is feeling like they also get to do a mitzvah by giving you a ride home, that can start to begin to cross a line where you're actually becoming a kind of a factor or implicated in the decisions they're making on Shabbat, which even if you don't want to judge and you're not really interested in getting them to change their behavior, there is a sense in terms of your own integrity of, well, okay, your way of observing Shabbat shouldn't, as an observant person, depend on someone else essentially you know not adhering to those standards so i have a question about that because why wouldn't that apply to my appreciating their contributions to the study group in general if i said wow the real main reason i go to this study group is because this individual who drives there every week has fascinating things to say is a really close friend of mine you know if if for whatever reason i I'm implicated in their showing up, um, then, when, then why does it matter whether or not they drive me home after? Yeah, well, so I think when you're talking about someone's contributions, independent of how they happen to get there, there's yeah. a wide range of reasons why you might treat that with tremendous openness and generosity. First of all, they could make those contributions if they had other ways of showing up and you might invite right. them to stay in their right. home, in your home, or the host might. Right. There's any number of so ways. So it's like if they would have walked, they would have said just an interesting yeah. of a comment. Their contribution is not sort of dependent on the way that they got there. And then I think also beyond that, once you're dealing with kind of that perspective on their participation, I think it's important also from a, a, a generous place to say, well, it's not really even clear if this person self-perceives as doing something wrong by driving on Shabbat in order to get to the study group. Whether or not, you know, I or someone else would, would give that guidance, I think you also have to take an honest take and saying, what this person seems to be doing in terms of their religious disposition and their commitment to community is what they perceive in some broad sense to be a mitzvah. Like, sure, a mouthpiece of the rabbinic tradition might say, I think you should think about this differently. But when we're just sort of assessing what are the intentions, what's the disposition, the contribution, I think any honest person would have to say, this is a well-intentioned person who's investing and contributing to the Jewish community and therefore celebrating their presence in the group doesn't have to be at odds with my not necessarily thinking about their mode of transportation as the ideal way to facilitate that. Here's the other piece, which I would say, which I think is you know important to keep in mind. I don't know exactly what's um, behind the, the questioner's state in terms of their experience of potentially being judged by having mm -hmm. this person refuse the ride. And I can imagine that there's some degree of discomfort, even though the question sounds like it's articulated in a very self-confident, transparent, open way. You know, I think there's no question that if everyone else is accepting the ride and this person isn't, it's not hard for me to imagine that the questioner might feel, this feels a little yucky to me week in, week out, to feel like someone's telling me implicitly, hey, you shouldn't have done that and I'm gonna almost demonstrate it to you by walking home in the dark. To the extent that's going on for the questioner at all, that's where I would 
push a little to say, maybe you shouldn't worry so much about convincing this person. Because at the end of the day, were you not in the picture, this person would have to, in keeping with their own understanding of what God and the Torah and the discourse of halakha wants of her, would have to figure out how to get to and fro from this place. And that's not really actually about you. And to the extent that this person, you know, has their own system for doing it and really would prefer to create a space, even if there's some black letter law justification to the contrary, would prefer to create a space where they do that in a sort of pure Shabbat observant environment, that's okay. And actually part of respecting the difference between people in that way is recognizing that, yeah, there may be certain barriers between us when we don't share all the same convictions. We can still participate in the study group together, but it may be you're gonna drive home and I'm gonna walk home. And while I think it is appropriate to explore when can those barriers be overcome, sometimes it's equally as important to recognize this is actually a divide between us. And despite it, we've got all these other things in common and let's focus on those. Great, I think that's helpful. I have a, uh... A follow-up question that you may tell me is, is its own episode, but maybe I can get you to just say one or two sentences about it. I'm wondering what you think about the concept of asking halachic questions for other people, that this is a, a person who's writing to the POSAC, who's writing into Responsa Radio to say, what should she be doing about this? I don't know if there's a long history of you know, writing, writing to, to rabbis about other people's problems and situations, um, if that feels like that's a good use of, of halacha and of the halachic process. Um, I don't know. It, it may be its own question, but, but I would yeah, love your, a, your thought. It's a really interesting question, and I'd have to think more about it in the abstract. In particular, I'm intrigued by the question of how much do we see that in the literature? That's a very interesting question to me. But I think part of where I instinctively go whenever that happens, and you heard me go to this place at the end, is to have my pastoral antennae go up and to say that oftentimes when someone is asking a question for someone else, they're actually probably in part asking for themselves, whether or not they admit it or are fully aware. That is to say, there's something about their interaction with this person and their practices that is bothering them or that is difficult for them. And you don't want to project or overly psychologize as to when that may be going on. But I think that part of what was so interesting about this question is it's both a very practical concern that someone is asking out of care for another person, but I sense also it's about their relationship and how do I navigate what might halacha tell me even if I'm not listening to what the classical sources might tell me about driving on Shabbat, or I feel my circumstance is very complicated, I'm not yet in a position to put that into play, might it still have something to tell me about how I interact with others around that? And that does ultimately come from the questioner herself. Yeah. Thanks.
Have a halachic question you'd like answered on the show? Email us at halacha at machonhadar.org. You can also leave us a message at 215-297-4254.